Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 12th of July, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes. It's time for Baiju's promoters to step aside, even as the government orders an inspection of their books. Everyone is talking about micro-cap investing. Why it sounds faddish and perhaps even dangerous. High-intensity rains are claiming lives, destroying homes and public infrastructure. Can we plan for extreme weather? And hmm, Indians paid over 80 crore rupees to apply for Shenzhen visas, which got rejected. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Baiju's promoters should go. There is usually an unfortunate but steady build-up to corporate bad news, particularly if it involves only peeling back layer after layer till almost nothing is left. Bloomberg is now reporting that the Indian government has ordered an inspection into the account books of education tech titan Baiju's, which saw the resignation of its order Deloitte and three board members and investors last month. The Ministry of Corporate Affairs has sought a report in six weeks, sources told Bloomberg, asking not to be named as the information is in public. The inspection follows an internal assessment of the company's state of affairs and, based on the findings of the inspection, the government will decide if the matter needs to be escalated to the serious fraud investigation officer, something that's been reported repeatedly and mentioned in the last few days in the context of this story. Now, just the last action in itself would not be so worrisome, as would not be many other problems that this education company is facing. However, the sequence of events going by past experience is building up like a rising drumbeat, starting with an enforcement-directed raid in April end, or just two months ago, to now the Ministry of Corporate Affairs or Company Affairs looking into books. But add them all up, previously culminating in the departure of an auditor and the investor directors, things are not looking good at all. It does not help that the government has put out a general and gentle reminder that an auditor cannot absolve itself of responsibility of fraud by resigning were it to have occurred during its tenure. The National Financial Reporting Authority put out a circular on 26 June saying auditors should not be under such misconceptions. It also referred to a Supreme Court judgment dated May 3rd, which again involved, well, Deloitte, but concerned an older case of IL and FS, another beleaguered, scandal-ridden company. Now, there are entrepreneurs and business people who stick it out because they are convinced either of their innocence, competence, or mortality, and sometimes do succeed in holding out till better days come. In this case, for specific and general reasons, it does not appear that Baiju is on a strong wicket, either within the company or the external environment. At this point of time, the only way out for the Baiju promoters is to step back and down totally and allow a truly independent board, if indeed such a board can be instituted, to take over. The founders might be completely innocent of all accusations and slurs, except, of course, of crashing the dreams of investors and other assorted admirers in the tech ecosystem, but they should return to run the company only after the haze that is deepening by the day has lifted. It is extremely inconceivable, at least as far as I can see, that their continued presence can help nurse back the company to any semblance of normalcy in a rather abnormal environment. And things will get worse if some skeletons begin to tumble out of the proverbial cupboard. Remember that a big-name auditor would not have resigned and three investor directors would not for all practical purposes have abandoned their billions of dollars of investments if something wasn't wrong. And finally, remember that the government of the day, or any day, 
is quite alive to such unravelings and the impact that it can have on the overall investment climate and the image of India now being a startup nation and the rest of it. And it will move. When I say it, it means the government if it has to. For all the criticism of the government's handling of the Adani Hindenburg issue, note that the Securities and Exchange Board of India, or SEBI, which reports to the government, has now mandated all foreign portfolio investors, or FPIs, to make additional granular level disclosures if they hold more than 50% of their Indian equity assets in a single group. Now, this to throw back was a major bone of contention in the Hindenburg accusations, which said that Adani was holding and thus manipulating its stock price through ghostly overseas entities. Now, how this specific issue will play out and if FPIs or foreign portfolio investors will wriggle out by finding some other vehicle is not, of course, clear right now and not the point for today either. But the course of action for the founders of Baiju, who we are talking about today, the poster boy for all things great in the startup world, is quite clear. They must go. The big micro-cap frenzy. Early last month, investment bank Goldman Sachs put out an interesting report, which we profiled in the core report on June 6th. It said that India had produced the largest proportion of multi-bagger stocks among 10 major emerging and developing markets. Goldman identified some 269 stocks which fit this 10-bagger definition over 20 years after studying some 6,700 stocks. More importantly and relevant to today's theme is that at least half of these multi-baggers had a market capitalization of $50 million or less than 400 crore one would imagine going by current rates. Which brings us to microcaps, stocks that hover and float in the 500 crore to 1000 crore market capitalization range today. Though the exact definition could vary depending on of course which brokerage or securities house. Now before we come to some questions and poses, a quick update. Several mutual funds that started collecting funds for micro-cap or smaller-cap schemes, as they call them, have closed or are closing their doors. In the last week or so, Nippon India Mutual Fund, which is advertising quite heavily right now, and Tata Mutual Fund stopped lump-sum investments into their funds or schemes. Both are allowing systematic investment plan-based investments, which come in smaller but predictable doses and from usually smaller investors. The reason they don't want large chunks of money is that they don't want to be saddled with more money than they can invest, at least judiciously. And obviously, there are not that many liquid options in this particular area, which is small caps. Now, there are some fairly obvious questions. Are micro caps a new name essentially for what Goldman is calling small cap two decades ago? And by extension, is it a way of approaching the market differently since mutual funds and brokerages have to find new ideas to pitch to customers and clients? Now, the interesting thing, which in some ways fits with the areas we cover at the core dot in, is that close to 70% of stocks in the micro cap universe or smaller cap universe earlier are industrial, including manufacturing, and then on to areas like discretionary consumption, which also involve manufacturing. Now, the most important question, of course, is whether there is any steam left in the micro cap wave. And is it just as we found the right definition coming to an end? To get a larger sense on what this micro-cap wave was all about, I spoke with Vinod Karki, equity strategist at institutional broker ICICI Securities, and began by asking him to define micro-caps. See, micro-caps, if you go by the classification methodology that's been given out, it is the companies which, if you were to rank companies based on market cap, they would start from the 501st company 
we have put a limit till the thousandth company. So any company between market cap rank of 501 to 1000 can be classified as a micro cap. And uh, typically these companies would be having market caps of few thousand crores and less this. And would you say that this definition has held or been used in the past as well? That has been not exactly that way. The MC gave out these classification rules a few years ago, if you remember. And microcap actually is not defined properly. It is actually a subset of small cap. So anything which is beyond 250 company becomes small cap. But if you look at the NSC index, the NSC microcap 250 index, it is also looking at companies beyond 500 market cap rank. We have also been defining microcap similarly for quite some time, but we take it from the 501st rank to the 1000th rank. And, and what would you say is a good period for estimating returns? So for instance, let's say if you look at some of the big gainers today in the markets, and I mean, which are obviously all large cap, I'm assuming you would have to go back at least 15, 20 years to have spotted them as microcaps. Would that be correct? Well, I would say 10 years is a reasonably good time, 10 and beyond, for some smaller micro company to become somewhere in the mid to large area. The darlings of today, Bajaj, Fanan, Bajaj, Pinsir, if you look at them, 2011, 12, they were clearly in the small cap category at that point in time. So I think 10 years and beyond is a reasonably good time for allowing a smaller cap or a micro cap company to really expand into a mid or large company. And when you look at the universe and your report also talks about some companies and your top picks, but is there any thread that kind of connects all of them or some of them at least in terms of the industry or sector they belong to or the kind of companies they are? See, if you look at the economic recovery, what we've been observing that post-pandemic economic recovery has been largely from the investment cycle and the manufacturing uh, activities and the uh, real estate cycle and the credit cycle picking up. And uh, what we observe is that the micro-cap space, unlike the large-cap Nifty index, has a significantly higher weightage to the industrial sector, basically. Within the micro-cap index, more than 50% weight is in the, from the industrials, and almost 18% is from discretionary consumption. And very less of the typical defensive sectors like staples, IT, you know, those kind of sectors, basically. So I think that's one common thing, sectorally, if I were to look at it. You know, as you look ahead, now there are two kinds of ways, I guess, investors would love to get into this. Obviously, they would want to invest directly. And my question now is, what's the cautionary note you have for them? And secondly, mutual funds are now, uh, some of whom said that they were going to focus on this space are closing their doors because I'm assuming they're not seeing enough opportunity or enough liquidity. So is there a contradiction of sorts there? So in our analysis and research, what we realized is what is a boon for this segment in an upcycle becomes its curse. So what I mean by that is, First of all, as, you, as I mentioned, a lot of these, the bigger weight is in cyclicals. So cyclicals typically do well when you are in an expansion mode in the economy, industrial and discretionary consumption and things like that. And second is these micro caps have very low liquidity. So the bid and ask spread is always high. If there is a frenzy to buy, the prices are bid up significantly higher, which I reckon will happen only when you have a 
environment where these assets are in demand, that will result in these prices spiking if you are to enter a bull market because the liquidity will be less, the assets will be in demand, and therefore the price run-up will be significantly higher. Now look at it from a bear market scenario. So in a bear market, what will happen is first of all, the cyclical assets, cyclical industrials, really see the demand impact in the economy, the first ones to get impacted severely. And second is, in the secondary market, the liquidity will always be an issue for such asset. While if you want to sell it, it will be even more difficult to sell it. So the best time, uh, the only time rather, to choose this asset class would be when you are getting a sense that we are entering a bull market which is supported by a broad-based investment cycle and an economic upturn. And you believe that that's somewhat the phase we are in, which also triggered the report to start with? Yes, absolutely. So we have been over the last year or so been telling our clients that the post-pandemic economic recovery in the GDP, if you were to break the GDP number, it is largely driven by gross fixed capital formation. Large part of it is being contributed by the decadal upturn in the real estate cycle and the massive central government capex. States have been behind, but now they are expected to pick up given that the fiscal deficit of the states is under control and their revenues are rising. And corporates have also started picking up capex that we have seen in FY23 to some extent. It is turning out to be a broad-based epic cycle like we saw between 2003-04 till about 2010-12. Looks like we are beginning to see that kind of environment. So in this environment and the bull market also showing signs of a broad-based market rally, unlike the pre-COVID rally which you have seen, they have been very narrow. I mean, the five, six stops were contributing to bulk of the index gains. Now, that era is behind and we are seeing more broad-based performance. So, I think a uh, combination of what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the market, they should both be reflecting each other. One should not be at odds with the other. So, I think that is confirming. And that's why we think that given that we still have some cushion for microcaps over large-cap valuation, and in the past, we have seen that in a bull market, the valuations of microcaps can actually reach the large caps at the peak of the cycle. And we still have 150, 200 pips of spread left. Uh, I think there is a chance for this asset class to overcome. Right, Vinod, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Kogan. Meanwhile, the stocks that Karki and team have picked as part of their top picks in their coverage universe include... Wonderla Holidays, Somani Ceramics, Green Panel, Sansera Engineering, ISGEC, Fusion Microfinance, Repco Home Finance, Nazara Tech, Tatva Chintan, Astra Microwave, Keval Kiran, and Gokuldas Exports. Now, these are all, just to repeat, ICICI Securities picks. Some of these are older companies, and I have heard of them after a while. So if you really want to think long term, I guess this is where you start to look. The Goldman report, by the way, said that sectorally domestic cyclical sectors, investment and consumer cyclicals have produced the largest number of multi-baggers at 54%. Specifically, cement, chemicals, capital goods and consumer durables and retail have seen the largest number of multi-baggers, Goldman had said then. Can we be more disaster resilient? Data can deceive. 
The top line numbers tell you that this year's monsoon was delayed, as you all know now, but that the rains in the last week or so have made up for that deficit and as a matter of fact, we are now in surplus. What this hides is the fact that there are considerable variations within and across the country with sharp deficits in some parts of the country like East, Central and South and very high surpluses in others like Northern India. Heavy rains have killed at least 42 people with rivers overflowing and landslides in hilly areas. Many are feeling a sense of dread and deja vu seeing the all too familiar WhatsApp videos of sludge tearing through towns and bridges and concrete structures being washed away. The damage to life and property, both private and public, does find its way into headlines. But the damage to livelihood and the local economies usually does not or less so. And that is why perhaps it deserves a little more attention. Given that weather patterns are changing and the intensity increasing, what is it that we can learn from or take away and more importantly, better prepare in coming days? I reached out and spoke to Manu Gupta, co-founder of Seeds, a non-profit comprising mostly technocrats that started around 30 years ago that works on building resilience of people exposed to disaster and climate change. Seeds and Manu Gupta's teams have worked in many parts of the country in different ways to build resilience. One example I can quote here is their groundwork in Assam, where they built flood-resilient houses on bamboo stills for local communities, or using concrete materials and better technologies to make houses more flood-resilient elsewhere in the state. I began by asking Manu to describe what he was seeing right now from his vantage point as someone who has worked in disaster response. This year, it has been very different from recent times. So one, of course, we've seen the global El Nino effect taking place after 2016. And we've also seen the abnormally high temperatures globally. Already the UN declared the hottest year so far in history. So things like that. Recently, we also experienced a cyclone that hit parts of Gujarat and Rajasthan. And that was one of the very rare cyclones emerging in the Arabian Sea in the month of June and staying so long. So these are all abnormalities that we are noticing this year in particular. As a result, our entire monsoon pattern has got disrupted. In some way, the, the winds in the west have pulled the monsoon in a different direction and we see more of excess rain on the northern part of the country and some deficit areas in south and east, which is quite unusual for this time of the year. And obviously, that has led to many other impacts. We can see in agriculture, in sowing processes, in transport, in logistics, and the all entire economy getting affected. So when we look at uh, what's been happening in the hills specifically, I mean, we're seeing it again after maybe a year or two years. So there seems to be some pattern in this. So there are two parts to it. One is obviously that uh, the intensity is so high that nothing can withstand it in terms of the kind of rains or landslides. The second is that we are not doing anything about it to prepare for it. So how are you viewing it? So conventionally, the whole monsoon has three parts to it. There is light rain, there is medium intensity and then heavy rain. We are seeing less of the first two and more of the heavy rain. And hence, the preparedness to confront a heavy rain spell is much less. That's why we are seeing more and more states being very unprepared to face such a disaster. I think this is something where we have to intervene at systemic level to see how we are able to respond to such kind of sudden spells better. And one area that comes to my mind is improved early warning system. 
right now our early warning is still based on a very uh, century old kind of model where we just predict the amount of rainfall we do not predict the kind of impact it is going to make and therefore as an ordinary citizen i am not able to make up or prepare adequately for such sudden spells so you've done work in assam for instance where you've tried to help villages prepare for flooding and you've also got a plan to work in many districts in india where you want to educate a certain number of people so that there is a sense of awareness that spreads subsequently what could you or someone like you with your understanding and access to resources do in these areas that we're seeing one is of course the hills that we are uh, we've seen in recent days and then in urban india which is a, obviously a much larger problem yeah i think this is a new emerging problem for this decade climate change was something that happened since the 1980s but in this particular decade we are seeing the impacts of climate change as a result we need a new set of tools the new set of approaches to dealing with this kind of phenomena and how it is impacting people so for organizations such as ours and even for governments i think there are areas that they need to look at especially around building resilience and that's what our long term strategy is all about so resilience in very practical terms means how do you protect small businesses how do you protect local livelihoods from getting impacted by these shock events when floods happened in chennai few years ago almost a third of the small businesses in that city never came back and losses were something to the tune of 2000 crores currently our financing systems our small loans our insurance systems do not cater to you know recovery from disasters we are still relying on very age old kind of norms for assistance after disasters and our own survey shows that they are only able to meet about 30% of the needs of people who are impacted by these disasters so i think we need more flexible finance we need more buffers to be created local buffers we need more flexibility in the way we approach these kind of disasters so i think these are all components of what we call resilient communities and that's the key word here going forward we are now in the middle of it so i don't know what one can do differently at this point but assuming that we've got a year to prepare for the next hit what could we be doing particularly again in the hills and parts of northern india no i think in the hills we are now seeing this pattern repeat itself almost every 6 to 8 months sudden cloud burst that we see or a lightning strike and then it leads to a whole deluge downstream in these areas and we saw that in himachal the last 3 days alone as i said earlier first and foremost uh, we need to improve our early warning systems in these hill areas second we need to secure the supply chains one of the areas that we felt when we spoke to communities is that because of these disasters while they are able to kind of save their lives what they are not able to save are their livelihoods and connections to their downstream towns or to the hubs from where they do their trading so somehow we need to secure those very critical lines of infrastructure of connectivity that is vital for these remotely placed areas and uh, hill areas and even arid areas for that matter that would be number 
And the number three is what we are looking at in terms of nature-based solutions. It sounds like a very long-term plan, but nature-based solutions are also looked at as first-aid solutions now because there is enough know-how in our country and around that we can look at creating natural buffers to extreme events, landslide protection, things like lightning protectors. All these can be done through very, very simple, low-cost and people-based solutions. Right. Uh, Manu, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Govind. And hmm, Schengen countries are rejecting more Indian visas than ever before. Well, you might call this adding fuel to the fire. Let me begin with a question. What's common to Algeria and Turkey and us here in India? Well, Algerian nationals were ranked top in terms of Schengen visa applications denied in 2022. They were followed by India and then came Turkey, according to schengenvisainfo.com. India saw some 121,188 applications or 121,000 applications being rejected, which would roughly add up to about 87 crore rupees, assuming of course only adults applied. But children between 6 to 12 pay half the application fee, children less than 6 years are free and there are some other free categories as well. So maybe the total sum will be around 80 crore or even less. But let's say it was 70 crores, that also is a high figure. The Indian visa rejection rate was 18%, so roughly five times as many have applied, so which would make it half a million. Arguably, more than 400,000 people may have travelled if they chose to. Now, India's rejection rate is higher than the average rejection rate across the world, which stood at 17.9% or close to 18%, but just under 18% in 2022. The only country with higher visa rejections than India is Algeria, where 179,000 of 392,000 visa applications were rejected. The rate of rejection and the money lost here does not reflect the clearly harrowing time many travellers, including people I know or have read about, have had in recent months trying to make it to Europe for summer. Visas have been delayed, flights have been missed and money gone down the drain. Not to mention the stress of the whole process. Hopefully, things will improve all round next summer for Indian travellers or they would have found newer and more greener destinations. And before I go, the government's GST or the Goods and Service Tax Council has decided to impose a 28% tax on the turnover of all online gaming companies, horse racing and casinos, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitharaman said. Earlier, the issue before the group of ministers was whether to impose a 28% GST on the face value of bets or gross gaming revenue or just on platform fees. The finance minister said that the tax will be levied on the entire value. Now, it's not clear how this is going to go down, but clearly not very well. More importantly, the tax on online gaming companies would be imposed without making any differentiation based on whether the games required skill or were based on chance. That's it from me on this episode of The Core Report. See you tomorrow, same time. As always, do send in your feedback. I'd love to hear from you on govindraj at thecore.in or you can reach out on Twitter or LinkedIn where I post these episodes. Have a great day. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core you can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in
thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.